across whatever you listen to podcasts on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, and presenter, and educator. I'm your host, and I'm joined, as always, by co-host and co-producer Kerr Lockhart. How are you, Kerr? Hi, Ben. It seems like... uh You've just turned the corner on a, a whole lot of uh, plate spinning. There oh my was uh, yeah. equal measure of distributing and playing live. It was all sort of happening all at once. Yeah, there's quite quite a lot. We should just mention to folks, tuned out for 25 seconds. This is episode 58 of the Silent Film Music Podcast, and we're recording mid-May 2023 for posting uh, later in May. This has been a long slog, if I may use that expression on television. We're all sort of coming out of something with the recent change of the uh, emergency status of the pandemic going away. And less and less uh, masking and tracking of COVID and, and all that kind of stuff. And heading into summer when the weather is nicer and people are going out and doing even more things. But uh, A lot of the uh, festivals are kind of going back to the way they were in 2019. Oh, uh, yeah. They, 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 kind of, they kind of are there. And some of them are doing hybrid presentations, which a lot of venues are, are doing just in, in general. I know that a friend of mine had a performance of a one- his one uh, one of his one man shows a play called Courage it was written you know and performed by John Peelmeyer. I couldn't make it, but I saw in the announcement. Oh, it's also streaming. So uh, I think everybody has sort of adopted this live, but also on Zoom later. At the beginning of last year and beginning of 2022, several projects lurched forward. Uh, everyone had enough focus or determination or whatever to move things forward. So Andrew Simpson got in touch with me about his Borzaghi project. And John Morsalis got in touch with me about his Lon Chaney Volume 2 project. I had also done a did a Kickstarter for the Raymond Griffith films uh, simultaneously with having licensed two Tom Mix films to TCM. And the licensing fees from that would cover the production of those those films and the restoration of them. And at the beginning of 2022, I figured, well, you know, I've got one or two shows a month. We're not a business podcast, but I think it will be interesting with the Tom Mix mm. uh, to simply put it out without the pre-order built-in element of Kickstarter. Since Kickstarter well, yeah. for restorations, that's really what you're doing. It's a pre-order. And I, I know you've done titles in the past. I think the, the Marion Davies, uh, some of them came out without Kickstarters. Some of the Marion Davies films were kickstarted by Ed LaRusso. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he had that element of that. And then what I did with uh, Beverly of Graustark was that it was a limited, quote unquote, limited edition Kickstarter where it only ran for a week and I was only taking X number of backers because it was, it really is a lot. And this is what I was, what I was sort of. Uh, leaning toward is that I, I figured, oh, I have time to do pr- production and then order fulfillment on a Kickstarter while uh, shepherding these three or four other projects, plus uh, a fifth volume of Accidentally Preserved, uh, sourcing something from, from John Marsalis also. And I, I thought, I, well, I had plenty of time. And then all of a sudden, something, Labor Day last year, all of a sudden, we just came roaring back. We went from second gear to fifth. <laughs> or whatever you want to call it, and I talk. I would talk with people. I said, "What? What just happened? You know, in the middle of October, we're all just, you know, we, we've had, you know, seventeen juggling pins thrown at us. And go, go!" 
And uh, a lot of people I spoke with felt the same way. And so I, I want to honor uh, all the in-person bookings that are, are coming my way and honor the fact that people want me to come out and play and uh, to perform in person uh, while also dealing with the, these uh, several trains that have left the station. <laughs> and then also this was further compounded by, uh, you know, last year, not only I, but pretty much everybody else working on the Undercrank projects had life stuff happen that just made their individual pieces of the puzzle take them a little longer. It's just what happened. It's not, I'm not upset about it. It's just, we, we all had stuff like, oh, I can't do that this month. Oh, I can't record for six weeks or whatever, which made things take even longer. And it's really uh, uh, only this week when I'm just sort of realizing, oh, I'm kind of done. The Lon Chaney came out last, last I think, August. The Borzaghi came out earlier this year. We're about to release the Raymond Griffith and the Tom Mix. And there's still the Francis Ford project running in the background. But it, it, it was just, it was really a lot. And there, there are a couple of people who had approached me about projects. And I wasn't blowing anybody off. But I just said, I can't even consider anything till July. This just wasn't room in in my brain, and I don't know if this. I know you've been you've you've uh, in on top of being a grandfather, and and you're you're a playwright, and you've you've had things going on, and I know the thing I kept thinking, it reminds me of if you know the movie Wonder Man with Danny Kaye. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah, his his Harold Lloydish character kept getting caught up in all these uh, plot machinations, and you know he'd been on his way to a deli to get potato salad, and he would just, in the middle of everything, go, potato salad. No telling what I can do once I learn the ropes. Didn't I bring you here when you wanted potato salad? Potato salad! Potato salad! I have to go. Stop, Eddie! Let's get out of here. Eh, Brooklyn's full of them. (laughs) And remember that, and so I kept, I don't know about you, but I kept having these what I call potato salad moments. Oh my God! I was supposed to send a DCP to that theater, or was I was I supposed to record something? Or, I mean, did, were you in in a place like that also with all oh, your work and everything? Absolutely, yeah, it was absolutely crazy. Uh, family business, the playwriting business, yeah. You know, when yeah, you send something in and you wait to see what they and you, as much as you say, tell yourself no news is good news, sometimes no news is really bad news. <laughs> it's just bad. <laughs> And just and just tell me, just just write to me and say no thanks. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really, but I did find myself in this position where, you know, it's like my my friend Keith Nelson from the Bindlestiff Family Circus, who I, I've watched him over a bunch of years build up his his plate spinning act, watching him do five plates and then six. I think it it stops at eight, and ah. I don't know if he's gone to nine, but that's that's about as much as a human being can do. <laughs> and then you know, I think we were all spinning ten or eleven plates, so. Things are slowly wrapping up, and I have lots of little loose ends. But lots of things I had ideas for had to go on a back burner for two to three months, and and I'm looking forward to maybe having uh, a slightly reduced schedule this summer where I can, you know, go back to some things I wanted to uh, improve on in terms of mm-hmm. my music and uh, reinvent a, a couple of ideas uh, with the organ that I, I've been wanting to have uh, the mental space to 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 lean into and see if I can. I can make happen and and just you know shepherd these two home video releases out to the public. I mean nobody's seen the Griffith the Raymond Griffith films looking this good since they were in theaters. 
1925 and 26 and in the Tom Mix films uh, as well I mean one of the films no one have, has seen since 1929 and Sky High has never looked this good so we're I'm re- I'm really excited uh for people to to finally get to see these especially Tom Mix you know, by the, the way the, yeah not not uh within your control uh but contrary to what we said I think in the last podcast Clash of the Wolves and Where the North Begins is now available for pre-order. It's going to be delivered yes. sometime this summer. Yes, that's right. Yeah, one of the, yeah. God, there were so many things I recorded. I mean, I, I just, I mean, I literally got to a point in April where I thought I can't record any more music. I'd just been auto, you know, just generating so much music for so many months um, in a recording situation, which is what we talked about in another earlier episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forgot. Yeah, no, actually, while while you were cutting. The episode fifty-seven. I saw something online that it was going to be released as a standalone. Uh, so, Clash of the Wolves will be out as a standalone release and not part of the, the Silent Dogs box set. And not only that, but you're going to get two for one when you buy Clash of the Wolves. Um, there's another feature on there called Where the North Begins um, with a score by John Marsalis. So you'll get uh, the two of us as well in this new. Uh, again. Uh, you know, it's it's one of these things where, uh, yeah, Rin Tin Tin, the movie with the German Shepherd, why why pay any attention to it? But one of the other things that's happened since we had our last episode is that I was at the TCM Film Festival. And we talked about this on the last episode about recording in a vacuum and wondering what the vibe was going to be like in the room. And it was the complete other end of the spectrum. Uh, the, the Clash of the Wolves show was one of the closing night films and... First of all, there's no, there's nothing as enthusiastic as a TCM fan <laughs> audience. <laughs> They're there for the ride, even if they don't know the movie. I, one of the films I saw was a new restoration of The In-Laws. And uh, Dave Carger, I think, did, who did the intro with two of the former cast members, two of the cast members, and he said, I'm just curious, how many of you have never seen this movie? And half the hands went up. Extraordinary. But but it was a packed house. This and is the so, um, the Arthur Hiller, the original Alan Arkin, the fun, uh, the good one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Andrew Bergman script. Yeah, it's just uh, yeah. So, uh, Clash of the Wolves. We're at the Hollywood Legion Theater. First of all, the way I got the organ in this year because my friend Jim Henry, the creator and developer of the Meditzer software, which I used to use, but I don't anymore. Uh, what we used to do is Jim had a small console and, and, and would bring that in, but Jim relocated to Chicago during the pandemic. So what do we do? Well, I figured out, this is another one of my, uh, if there's always a workaround uh, schemes where... I realized that a company called Nord that makes these cherry red, Norwegian red keyboards uh, makes a combo keyboard that looks like a Hammond B3 and organ pedals, both of which have MIDI. And somebody at the TCM Festival, whose job it is, is to find musical instruments and and stuff like that, found a, a musical instrument rental place in L.A. that had these things. They they rented it, brought it in. I put the wires together, and bingo, right out of the gate, it works. Fantastic. And we send the sound like I always do into the sound system. It sounds unbelievable. So that works. So we have the sound. It's this beautiful theater. I find out, I think maybe a day before I, I'm flying out, oh, Jacqueline Stewart is going to introduce the film. 
oh, fantastic! I, you know, she hosts Silent Sunday Nights, mm-hmm. uh, and it'd be and I think it'd be fun to connect with her again for the audience as well. And then I'm there two days. I get another email. Jacqueline wants to interview you on stage for a few minutes before the film. Okay, fine. So we have all of this excitement building up, and Jacqueline is there, and and it was just you know great hanging out with her in the the green room beforehand. We took pictures in front of the stepper step and repeat. She goes up and uh, introduces the film in a really great introduction, uh, and introduces me, and we talk. So so there's all this already this this hoopla, and she you know part of the intro. She Jacqueline explained why we're showing a Rin Tin Tin picture. I got to tell you, so this goes back to the enthusiasm level. Mm-hmm. So we go right into the picture. It, it gets, you know, it starts with a bang. It, it, it doesn't waste any time. And and actually, unless there's footage missing, we go from the main title, uh, a credit title, and I think there's a cast title. And then instead of having a title card that introduces something, and then we have our first wide shot, we cut, bang, right to a big forest fire. Wow. Uh, so I, I knew that was coming, so I, I knew as soon as I see the the last credit title fade, I lean into, you know, burning fire music to just grab the audience. But this is the thing that within maybe 45 seconds, uh, we get we are introduced to Rin Tin Tin. There's a shot of the dog. He gets a title card. We got back to him. There's an applause break for Rin Tin Tin. <laughs> He's done nothing except show up in a medium shot. And I thought, okay. <laughs> I don't have to worry about the rest of this film. And oh, the, so the, the audience caught the cue without... Uh, oh, they I mean, they just they saw Rin Tin Tin, mm-hmm. and they knew he was the hero of the picture, and burst into applause. Oh, that's fantastic. And I thought, <laughs> oh, okay. This is Batman or Superman, but right. with, with, you know, they were on the ride, and all the way through, there were moments where the, the bad guy... Uh, uh, the guy in a fedora with a thin mustache with a sneer, <laughs> you know, he got booed a couple of times. There were moments when Rin Tin Tin jumps off of a roof and lands on him and attacks him and the audience cheers. I mean, it, and it's not it's not one of those things where an audience is told, oh, please boo and cheer and all, and all this stuff. But it just happened organically. Mm-hmm. And it was just so exciting to see that the film had that effect in uh, an audience setting, and I I hope uh, if anyone listening uh, is uh, at an art house or works for one or knows a friend uh, who programs there, book the print. We showed the thirty five print, but it's also you know it can be shown on DCP from the Blu Ray. You know, it's one of those things like Tom makes. Everybody knows knows what Rin Tin Tin is or who he is, but they've never seen one of the movies, and they're actually very good. Uh, it's very very well made. So that was a thing where uh, my I had a few different expectations musically, and as soon as I heard that applause break, I thought, "Oh, I I don't have to help the audience go on the ride at all. <laughs> <laughs> I I could actually just sort of lean back a little bit and not really worry about it, just find where my themes go and and just follow it. But it was it was really really exciting, and the really cool thing was that. In in Jacqueline's uh, introduction of me, she mentioned the silent comedy watch party, and it got a little hand hey. uh, from the audience. We had a lot of watch party fans there. Uh, there was one guy, uh, Doug, Doug and his wife uh, Sarah. He came to the show wearing a Steve Massa shirt. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I got a, I got a selfie with him. And there were people coming up to me uh, who I ha- did not know who just came up and said, thank you for doing the watch party. And it just helped me get through the pandemic. And, and I've, you know, I've told, of course, Susan, and Steve and Mona and Crystal and Marlene uh, about these encounters. But it, it happened a number of times. You just recently had a new episode uh, from the Nasty Women collection. Yes. Uh, how did that go? Did you have you seen responses of people yeah. been, uh, coming back to you? The comments and email that I've seen that have been posted have been very positive. Somebody sent in a, a contribution to the show over through PayPal and in their message said that they were so glad to see him that they've ordered a copy and ah. and stuff like that. And uh, you know the ironic thing is we were you know Maggie Hennefeld who along with Elif Rung and Kainicha, uh were our guests uh, who were two of the three co-curators of the set along with Laura Horak. In Maggie's introduction, she she mentioned why the origins of why they decided to call this cinema's first nasty women without mentioning uh, a certain former president's name. And I thought, we all thought, yeah, well, that's so far in the past. And then he, he used the, the phrase he came on back. CNN earlier this week. And I thought, well, I guess it helps. Maybe it will help promote the set. <laughs> Maybe the algorithm will boost. I don't know. Good marketing yeah. move. But but the, the <laughs> films went over well. People really enjoyed seeing them. And I had said to both Maggie and Elif, as much as we all think, oh, everybody knows about the set, there are lots of people who have absolutely no idea what it is. And so we were happy to have them on. Thrill the Kino Lorber allowed us to uh, share the films with the watermark, and it's it's a it's a ninety minute infomercial for the set, which <laughs> it's it's four discs, ninety what ninety nine films. It's just uh, and and I think what, what a production. What wasn't clear, I think, when the release first came out, the thing I think to really emphasize is they decided for this box. Theoretically, there will be more boxes. But for this one, they deliberately decided to focus on comedy. And oh, sure. So Although there are there are some Western shorts, I think, on one of the discs. Yeah, no, that the dramas, yeah, but it's know, mostly comedies. Yeah, male silent comedians fall into basically two categories: they're dumb or crazy, or both. Mm-hmm. But the women are anarchic and rebellious. And gleefully so. Yes, often. it's a it's a it's a different thing. Sometimes they might be. Not dumb, they might be dizzy, yeah, to use the term of a hundred years ago, yeah, they don't do dunces, they do uh, kicking up heels against oh yeah, against society, yeah, yeah, then the films are, are uh, uh, lots of fun, so we were we were happy to have that that uh, have have them on that episode and help promote to promote the 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 box and 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 the films and those those great comedians from from over a hundred years ago. Well, let's take a, a, a little uh, pause to refresh. Uh, uh, here is something that I recorded in February, and I love sharing this when it comes up. And uh, I remember to bring my, my recorder and, and to actually record this. Uh, every year I do a show at the town school in Upper East Side of Manhattan. And we always do something for the fourth graders. But if there's a, a fit in the schedule, um, they arrange for the kindergartners to come in and do a separate program for them. I just show them... Oranges and Lemons with Stan Laurel, because it never fails. And here's about a minute and a half of my recording of my live performance, uh, uh, augmented by a room full of five-year-olds screaming their heads off with with laughter. (laughs) These people don't know anything from what is a silent movie, what is a black and white, what is a microphone, what they know nothing except, here, watch this. 
and uh, this is the it's about halfway in. This is uh, uh, it starts about a minute before Stan winds up doing uh, a version of the Dead and Alive gag with a, one of his co coworkers. Uh, here it is uh, from February of 2023. A couple of minutes of Oranges and Lemons with Stan Laurel. of oranges and lemons with Stan Laurel and lots of loud, raucous laughter from four and five-year-olds at the I town school. Some uh, sound effect people are going to steal that. Oh uh, gosh! That clip. I, I love sharing that with people because <laughs> they have no expectation. And, it and still you, works. It just you works. Don't know oranges and lemons. Come seek that one out on YouTube. It's one of the just really dumbest no plan movies. Clearly, they just said, "Here's our setting. Uh, we have wooden boxes and fresh fruit. Um, what can we do with yeah. that? You know, we've yeah. all been doing stage slapstick for years. Some of us from Fred Carno and from yeah. this and that. And yeah. uh, there's no real plan, but we're just going to do all the gags we know. Yeah." Yeah, um. and Stan has a is an arsenal of physical comedy gags, and and that's what I tell this, the kids. They're four years old; they can't read the titles. I said, "All you need to know is is this funny guy. His name is Stan, and the first half of the movie, he's picking oranges off of trees, and it doesn't go so good. And then the second half, he's in a factory and he's trying to pack the box oranges into boxes. That's all you need to know, and that's all <laughs> they did. They need to know, and it just they 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 connect with what they're seeing, and it's fun and uh, it's it's a shot in the arm for me and reassurance that you know there's something about the way silent film and its language and what i call the silent film universe it just it just it just works you know the less you think about it and worry about oh is anybody gonna like this or that and you know um i just finished teaching my 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 course at wesleyan and again my students had almost no reference whatsoever for silent film and we went everywhere all the way from one real dramas from the early teens all the way through the crowd. And, they, you know, there are some films that were a little harder to follow, like Warning Shadows, which has no titles and very hard to follow. Uh, and there were some films like The Mark of Zorro or, or 
the Keaton films that were very easy to, but it's, they still work. They don't need uh, any kind of accommodations per se to understand it. So that's why I wanted to share that that little uh, that so clip of kids. So if you if you know of any, yeah, go ahead. Goes in the top drawer of uh, audience development, which you say is the yeah the main audience part preservation. Of your yeah, so if you if you see any any uh, silent comedy film shows happening this summer, and there will be some of those, and you have uh, kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, people you babysit, take them. Take them to the show. I will be playing For Safety Last at the Jacob Burns Film Center in July. Check their website for the schedule on that. Uh, it's, a, it's a matinee. Um, bring kids uh, to anything like that, because that, that means that... They won't run away when you say Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton to them or we're silent. Uh, we're also gearing up for Josh Mills and I and Fantagraphics and Pat Thomas. Uh, we are gearing up for the publication date in July of the book Ernie in Kovacs Land. To, to paraphrase what he used to have as an announcement at the beginning of his shows is, the shortest 279 pages in publishing. They just seem long. <laughs> All of his so, shows, they, the shortest half hour in television. It just seems long. Yeah, so that, that book is coming out in July, and uh, we're we've you know, had doing fun. what we can to get the word out. Yeah, we've had fun talking about um, Ernie and music, because that's mm. not a small topic. Um, Gosh, no. Something I always have found of interest, I came to Ernie Kovacs, like a lot of people, through... Uh, the ABC series at the end, or the specials, or whatever uh-huh. they're yeah. called. Um, yeah, they were specials. Yeah. So they're famous for beginning with a shot of an oscilloscope and a recording of what we know as Mac the Knife. It's uh, was published under the title of the De, Demoratat, the Death Song, mm-hmm. um, which is sung by um, a minor character in the Three Penny Opera. Um, and I think the recording that we hear is from the original cast album. No, that's the really no? interesting thing because by nineteen by nineteen sixty one, Ernie had a choice. So yeah. there is there are recordings that were made in nineteen twenty eight when oh, the okay. when the play was written. It was mm. written to celebrate the two hundredth anniversary of the Beggars Opera, which it's yeah. based on. Okay, uh, mm-hmm. and that was the idea. They were gonna oh, we're just gonna do a quick rewrite of the Beggars Opera. Um, mm. And then it got out of control, <laughs> and they wrote a whole different musical. Uh, and that those were very uh, popular recordings. Um, yeah. They even made it here to the states um, yeah. because when Court Vile uh, met uh, George Gershwin, Gershwin congratulated him on those wonderful Three Penny Opera recordings. But he's got to get rid of that that terrible girl singer with the scratchy voice, who is of <laughs> course Wild's wife, Lana Lenya, who is <laughs> sitting there at the table. Um, oh gosh. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, they, they called it. I think the, she had an Ichikadichka voice. Um, Meine Herren, heute sehen Sie mich, Lisa, hab waschen und ich mache das Bett für jeden. Und Sie geben mir einen Penny und ich bedanke mich schnell. Und Sie sehen meine Lumpen und das lumpige Hotel. Und Sie wissen nicht, mit wem Sie reden. Und Sie wissen nicht, mit wem Sie reden. But so that was the recording for 30 some years. 
Yeah. Um, then 1954, Mark Blitzstein writes an English adaptation, and it really is an adaptation. Mm. Uh, it is kind of its own work. Um, yeah. But it does bring the Moritat to the attention of the English-speaking world. Oh, the shark has pretty teeth, dear, and he shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has Mackie there, and he keeps it out of sight. Before that, there'd been one production that opened in 1933 and flopped. Yeah. Um, so that's all the people knew. They might have seen the Popst film, but yeah. that was not anything that was going to make this an American popular song. Yeah. What happened is in the same year, Dixieland expert Turk Murphy actually thought that this song would suit Lewis. He makes an arrangement and gives it to Lewis's producer at Columbia Records, George Vakian. Lewis takes a look at the charts. He loves it. He's going to record it. For some reason, a lot of Lenya was actually in the studio when uh, the recording was made, and her name winds up in lyric. Yeah. Um, and uh, has a lot of fun with it. Suki Tawdry, Jenny Diver, Lottie Lanyard, Sweet Lucy Brown. All oh, the line forms on the right, dears. Now that Mackie back in town. Take it, Satch. <laughs> That's 1954, um, mm. and that's a bit of a hit. It becomes a little jazz hit. It's a highlight of uh, Ella in Berlin, where famously Ella Fitzgerald forgot all the lyrics. Oh, okay. <laughs> and she just improvises a whole new set of lyrics wow. to it. But so you heard it. Yes, we swung it. That, that was, I think, in 1958 or so. In mm. 1959, uh, Billy May writes a hard-swinging arrangement for Bobby Darren. Yeah. and that's, that's the one we all know. That's the one that puts the song into the American songbook. Did you hear about Louis Miller? He disappeared, babe. After drawing out all his hard-earned cash. And now Maggie Heath spins. So it's in the zeitgeist. Everyone knows about it. Everyone yeah. knows about it. Now, also in 1958, Philips Records in the Netherlands mm-hmm. says, hey, uh, it's 30 years since Three Penny Opera. We have this new thing called Stereo Records. 
let's make a stereo complete record of Three Penny Opera. In fact, actually, there was an ongoing project. They had hired Lenya to produce a whole lot of vial, especially Brecht vial, works that were recorded in Germany. And I think Three Penny was the first stereo one. Uh-huh. So they assemble a idiosyncratic German cast. They're not trying to get pop hits. This is done by the classical division. And in mm-hmm. fact, it's picked up by the Columbia Records Classical Division. Oh, they oh that, a, so that's what Ernie used. I, I knew so, there was some older Columbia. So okay. that's what it is. It's a 1958. I mean, that. it was actually yeah. it was actually sort of new, um, and it has that extremely uh, wide vibrato singer. Oh gosh, playing yeah. the street singer, and um, I don't know. Maybe Ernie thought that would look good on the oscilloscope. Und der Haifisch, der hat Zähne, und die trägt er im Gesicht. Und Mekis, der hat ein Messer, doch das Messer sieht man nicht. Uh, who knows, his, his choices are just so beyond out of being out from out of left field but and it may be it was just a sort of uh, a flip on the the idea that you know uh, Mac the Knife was so well known and such this big swinging hit oh I know I'll just take this I'm, really I'm, dry German language version I'm, and throw and he was doing that with the, the, the Dutch Masters commercials also where you right. have these slow and steady sight gags with his very slow and steady piece of music long build yeah I, I'm just imagining the ABC executives sitting down and saying well you know I don't, this is funny maybe I'll have a, one of those great bathtub gags and they're sitting down to watch the tape of uh, Ernie's new show, and out comes what der Haifisch. Yeah, <laughs> the first. Yeah, and the, and the, and and all of the shows. One of the things I I, I noticed <laughs> in going through all of the specials because I had seen these excerpted, mm-hmm. you know, in the best of Kovacs. Well, that's series the thing that they John got chopped did. up. Yeah, right. But the actual specials, the format is basically there's a blackout gag followed by the opening titles. The, the, you know that that um, kaleidoscope image of a silhouette of fingers playing the theme you hear it we cut to ernie in the control room and he just says thanks for watching and then we cut so then the 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 first major sequence in the show every time is the oscilloscope with that music and repurposing uh sight gags that were originally clues Mm -hmm. uh shot for take a good look all right now think of of, of, only you and josh would know because those sight gags are so famous i mean i first saw them when Laugh-In went on the air, a lot of yeah. people scurried back to the uh, research room and said, hey, uh, here's here's the origin of all those Laugh-In gags. Yeah. We, we have the, the Ernie Kovacs sight gags. So, yeah. uh, I mean, I always saw them cut up and isolated that way. Uh, so oh, yeah. they were for the uh, – and I did not know until now that those were for the game show. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, you, most of them means he, he, he shot new gags as well, but – the idea behind doing the game show with the clues was to to bank the clues, like so that he would have these things, so he could create another show without having to do so much work. And then you know, <laughs> Jolene Brand is is part of the ensemble cast, and you know, she and and George Slaughter are a couple, so George is on the set hanging out there. So it's this very slow oh. transition evolution from 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 Kovacs and these blackout gags to what Laughing becomes a few a bunch of years later. 
The the weird thing, of course, is that this is what Ernie opens with is a shot of an oscilloscope with that bizarre recording. And remember, this his specials were once a month, and they were on ABC at ten thirty, following The Untouchables. So, because <laughs> you could imagine watching <laughs> Elliot Ness and Robert Stack and all these people, and then it's over, and then this comes on. <laughs> Well, and you were either, either most of America said, "Yep, time for bed," and then all the people who were the Kovacs fans. That's when the house, you know, everything stops, and we watch this. But um, <laughs> it is it's an unusual musical choice. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, that's when BBC T- Two ran uh, uh, Monty Python was mm. Sunday at ten thirty. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 as uh, um, Ernie's uh, of. Uh, Publicist Ernie and Edie's publicist Henry Bollinger told me, "Yeah, there's that was a bargain basement time slot, um, and it was nobody wanted it. And as long as uh, Ernie sold cigars, mm-hmm. uh, it was fun because this is still the era when the sponsor buys the airtime, right? So as long as General Consolidated Cigars is is happy with the uh, uh, the ratings being good enough, and Ernie's selling Dutch Masters." Um, then, then they're happy, and and he just he just did this every every month. But he got to do. I mean, this is the Kovacs way. You got to do it my way. Let me do it my way. If you don't like it, that's fine. Go thread up a western. And so he, I mean, he had complete creative control. And I don't know if the the people at ABC had had any say. They may have thought, "What the heck is this?" But again, he was <laughs> smart enough to make his place a safe place where he could do it his way. Yes. Yeah. You know, he oh, had no, that absolutely. savvy to say, okay, I'm not going to try and, uh, you know, I, I'm not Orson Welles. I'm not going to blow up the whole system. Yeah. I'm going to make this little spot where I can do what I want, and uh, uh, the guys who write the checks are fine with it. Yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah, that, but that, that's very interesting that the history you were just sharing about, the how, you know, Moritat became this pop tune in, in, in the 50s of, Mac the Knife, and um, so if you want to see what we're talking about, take a look uh, uh, online, take a good look online, for here's Edie, a box set of uh, Edie Adams' show, and also, if you don't have any of the box sets of Ernie Kovacs' television shows, the ones from Shout Factory, the ones that we put together from the original shows that have not been cut into pieces, do pick them up. Uh, and the the book Ernie in Kovacs Land, uh, which was co-edited by Josh Mills, me, and Pat Thomas, is the ultimate companion guide to Kovacs. It's just everything that and anything that <laughs> Kovacs wrote or had published or drew or doodled. Uh, there are his handwritten notes for the Eugene movie he never got to make. Uh, photographs of things you've never seen. Joe Michaelis in costume as Rancid the Devil Horse. Stuff like that. You'll 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 enjoy it. So look for Ernie in Kovacs Land. A couple of laundry uh, lists. And, uh, oh yes, shopping. Yeah. Uh, so we'll have uh, links for those in the show notes. Abs- absolutely. June 2023 is the 10th anniversary of my first DVD release for Undercrank Productions. Um, June 2013 is when I released Accidentally Preserved Volume 1. You couldn't have had a more apropos entrance 
into being a video distributor. I mean... How, how, how so? Well, that you really sort of walked backwards into it. I mean, it's actually oh, yeah. called Accidentally Preserved. Like, I never... Yeah, yeah. This is a, this is a release I never meant to do. Uh, <laughs> right. And, and, and yeah, and, and, and the film... Yeah, it's just like the way the films... Nobody yeah. thought, oh, we're, we'll be saving these for generations. It was never the idea behind launching the Codescope Library in 1925. Um, but that was that was my first release, and in honor of this, and this is this is like maybe the one thing I, I'm appreciative of Facebook for, is that <laughs> in, in December of last year, of 2022, uh, it popped up a memory. Oh, this is your first Kickstarter. And I thought, oh, wait a second. It was, it's, it, oh, it's been, it, this happened 10 years ago. And I thought, oh, that means that the release of Actually Preserved is coming up uh, 10 years from whenever that was, which is June of this year. So I, uh, I've i spent the last five or six months making an event out of the fact that it's our 10th anniversary. We have 27 releases out. We'll have another one out in June with the Raymond Griffith Project and, and a 29th title out in July. But all throughout June, from June 1st to June 30th, every single Undercrank Productions release will be on sale on, uh, on whatever online platform you like to work with. I've worked with uh, the folks at Alliance Entertainment, who's my uh, manufacturer-on-demand company, and they, they're promoting it to their B2B people and to, on their various websites and to actual video stores that buy physical product. Um, and I've also spent, you know, a bunch of months working on publicity pieces. So there'll be a dozen or more podcasts that I'm guests on or articles that'll appear in print about the anniversary. But uh, I was looking back and I realized that when I did my Kickstarter in 2012, um, two things. One is, uh, no, you know, today everybody thinks... Uh, when something turns up, oh, who's going to kickstart that? It was, can that be right. a Kickstarter? So, and so it's like it's become so commonplace. Well, of course we're going to kickstart it. And when I did this, uh, nobody had gone this route before. No one, at least with a classic film project, no one had gone to the fans for funding. Kickstarter itself had only been around for three years. Um, it launched in, in uh, I think, late in 2009. But I was very much... Uh, aware of it as well as something patreon was brand new at the time and harnessed uh i just i just saw these three pieces i have you know you can uh raise money for the production by going to the fans Mm. and letting them know that by pitching in they're helping make this available and then by doing manu doing it as manufacturer on demand i don't have to make 1500 of them stick them somewhere and then hope for the best and then also by having a not only good product but this is the the the, the fourth prong which is a box art um and i i'm just lucked out with having worked with marlene weissman for so many years at that point i just asked her to, to create the, the 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 box art uh for this and because i one of the things i realized is that the artwork is your first line of defense online. If it looks self-published, it looks self-published. Uh, but if you make it look like it isn't, nobody knows uh, that it's self- that it's self-published. The other thing that starting the what turned out to be a, a label uh, was was out of out of a, an interest in picking myself uh, as opposed to waiting for somebody else to pick me. Um, there are 
only so many film accompanists and there's only so many of us who get chosen for certain home video projects with the certain number of other dis- distributors and home video producers. And it's not always me. And I thought, well, I wonder how else I can get my work out there. Um, Mark Roth and his Real Classic DVD label uh, it was uh, you know, supportive of what I was doing and had me score tons of things for them, and uh, which was a great opportunity for me. But I thought this would be a way to to do something like that and then um the the second the my second project was the mishaps of must you suffer where i was going to get stuff instead of from my own collection but from the library of congress and that turned into my you know the 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 co-branding deal that i i i now ha- have had with the library for uh, the last 8 years so but the, this was uh, a com- i just w- wear enough hats to, to know how to <laughs> produce a dvd and to release it and to to do publicity, um, I've I've just taught myself how to do that. And one one of the things I've learned is that when you that you tell people or somebody says, "Oh, you got a lot of publicity," it's something that you don't receive. You you literally get it. You have to go and get it. Um, it's what a lot they of people think earned press. Yeah, I mean a lot of a lot of people think, oh, you know, such and such a newspaper must think you're a big. Sh-. No, no, you have to, <laughs> you you spend years developing connections and relationships with people who are writers and who like your work. So really excited to be able to celebrate the tenth anniversary by lowering the prices on everything, so the people who uh, don't know about the filling out the landscape. Uh, non Mount Rushmore titles <laughs> that the Undercrank has released uh, can get their feet wet, and for the completists uh, out there, they can fill fill out their Undercrank shelf. I think you uh, undersell some of these titles. I think with the the Raymond Griffith and uh, Knighthood was in flower, or just some that come to mind immediately, which are at least small landmarks in silent film history. Oh no, absolutely. These are these are titles where. They, they they wouldn't sell enough units to warrant the the kind of resources and attention and focus that uh, some of the other uh, outfits would be willing to uh, invest themselves in. And that's not a dig at them. I don't blame them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I uh, my feeling is like, oh, you don't want to put this out? That's fine. I'll put it out. Mm-hmm. You can do the big box sets and the Keaton restorations and, and whatever – that's great. We're all doing the same thing, but this is these are the films you went to see uh, in the teens and twenties while you were waiting for for Harold Lloyd to make his next feature, and they they, they deserve an audience and they deserve to be seen. And I feel like uh, not in some cases, some parts of it are about filling out the landscape, and some parts of it are about uh, re- restoring the reputations of these of people like Douglas McLean and. And uh, Marion Davies. I mean, it's been what a, it's been a great year for her uh, with with the the, the publication of uh, Laura Gabrielle's excellent biography of her, Captain of Her Soul. Um, uh, now you can actually see the films and find out. Oh, they aren't stuffy costume dramas that that nobody liked. They're actually really good. And yes, Marion Davies is a brilliant performer. And same thing with Raymond Griffith. And you know. Tom Mix had never appeared on T- T- TCM before uh, the the broadcast a week or two ago, and um, uh, I'm I'm pleased to have been uh, part of this, along with everybody else who works in this 
uh, on these projects. I mean, the big uh, news from... is that it's this is not taking your medicine to see these films. Uh, this no, is no, not no. something you're worthy that you're doing. It's good for you because it's good for you. These movies are fun to watch. Yeah, uh, this, is, this is not. Yeah, uh, yeah, this is not uh, eating your cultural vegetables. This exactly. is this is this is good stuff. Yeah, uh, and 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 it was it was meant to be fun a hundred years ago, and remarkably, they're still fun now. Uh, we've talked they, about those things where uh, you know, cultural references have gotten uh, a little difficult, but none of them negate the films. No, I mean it, it, we remind ourselves that we're watching a cinema recording of a cultural mores or whatever that that existed at the time and uh it's an old movie and this is where the culture was but well, uh look, the the films the you know if anything I I'm hoping that with the release of Sky High uh somebody will or some people will uh dig into history books and newspapers and help us understand uh, the plot line of, of Sky High, which part of it involves smuggling Chinese people into California from Mexico. And that part of the plot kind of disappears for most of the picture and then it comes around again. But there must have been something in the news that 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 sparked that off because it's 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 it, it's a it's never explained, but it doesn't really make any sense either. And it's really about the smuggling jewels across the border, and and also um, the, these other these other people, but it's never explained why. So I'm I'm hoping that we'll we'll learn more about that. But the main thing is that you're going to get to see Sky High uh, looking as good as it possibly can, and with the original tinting and toning uh, reinstated. This is something that Crystal. Our associate producer found the original tinting sheet. And then Catherine Pratt, who did our grading and who also did the digital restoration work on Sky High, reinstated the original tinting and toning. And now what tinting and toning is originally uh, for tinting, the film's base would be a specific color so that the white or lighter areas would be that color. And toning is something where the film's emulsion would absorb a color, so the black or darker areas would be imbued with that color, sometimes both at the same time. So this has now been put back in digitally, and you'll see it in uh, some places where you have both pink tint and blue tone. So you have some sequences, like during the climax, toward the end where Tom is flying a plane over the Grand Canyon, where you have blue tone or blue-gray tone and pink, because it's supposed to be taking place at, at twilight, and it's quite effective. We've become aware that uh, the colorists are really important in these issues, even in a pure black-and-white film. So what does a colorist do with a black-and-white sequence? Why are they so um, important? Well, what you're able to do digitally, and this was happening even before digital, is that you could go shot by shot and correct the exposure. A preservation negative or a uh, fine grain or master positive may have printing issues in it and you need that need correcting. Uh, some shots may be a few points too, too high or too low. So what, they're, what uh, somebody doing... Uh, the colorist or the person doing grading uh, does is they look at every single shot on a histogram, which is like uh, a waveform or or however you do it. But you're looking for where the black levels are in the original material and where they ought to be. Same for the white levels. And then there are various gradations within the grayscale where you're just either on a straight 
line just moving where the i guess it's called the gamma is as far as the gray tone but you can also if you have the time and, and the patience adjust all the various gradations within that range going shot by shot and uh, everybody has has their own taste kevin brownlow uh seems to feel that uh every shot should have some pure black in it uh i don't think every shot has has that necessarily but that that's what they're doing so you're doing that uh and and there are some sometimes there are printing anomalies that have to be corrected so most of the marion davies films uh that survive were prints struck in the mid 30s the nitrate and then preservation negatives were made from them and what we are discovering with a number of those is that three f- frames before and after every title card because the titles are all spliced in manually but whoever did the timing meaning the exposure uh, corrections when the negative was made mistimed uh, those sections all through the film so uh, the the people with uh, uh, Chris Krause and Graham uh, Brown who did who have done grading on this have had to go in and every three frames before and after a title adjust the exposure because wow. they were mistimed. Well, um, and, and that's just how, and it's just how it how it uh, these. It depends on how it survives, and and if you're lucky and have, you know, uh, what like was the case with uh, the Edward Everett Horton films, it was off of nitrate. This is preservation made off of nitrate camera negative. So there was work to be done, but it wasn't quite as. Uh, 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 didn't involve quite as much elbow grease as some other films might have. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, you know, I've been a silent film buff since, I suppose, the late 1960s, but I'd say with d- digital technology, this is the best time ever to be entering it for the first time because the quality of images you can see today with cleanup and stabilization and grading, mm-hmm. it's, it's, never been, it's never been less work to enjoy a silent movie and not apologize for it. And look, Tom Mix, he was one of the top stars of the era. I mean, we shouldn't have to explain him. This is a guy who was incredibly popular. Yeah. Well, hopefully this will will be a springboard for other screenings and other projects. I know um, one of the films uh, on the Silent Dogs set is a Tom Mix film called Teeth, involving a dog that bites somebody. And Tom, of course, defends the dog and, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there's that, and there's a film called Just Tony that I think UCLA has 35 millimeter on that. And th- there's a there's a few Tom Mix films out there, and there's always you know the Great Cane A Train Robbery, which which is a great film. I mean, it's a 1925 film, so there is you know Curtis McHenry as the extremely frightened uh, cook on the train. Uh, but uh, it's a it's a it's a fun movie, and and I think that by putting these things out, it gets the films shown more. Uh, so maybe it'll lead to more Tom Mix screenings. Um, I know the Gene Autry Museum uh, in California is going to be screening Sky High in June. So that's something uh, to look out for. And I think Cliff Retallick will be accompanying that. And that's that's good. You know, this is something that I'm discovering this year is that uh, I'm licensing a number of uh, our releases uh, on DCP for for screenings, especially, of course, Marion Davies. Uh, Laura is doing a number of events, so the Marion films are getting out there. But I'm glad to see not only that 
the the Autry Museum is showing Sky High, but that they're getting someone to come in and play. That's um, wonderful. The the track is on there, and I I encourage people please please hire a musician. I appreciate you uh, wanting to honor the fact that I've recorded a score, but they can buy the Blu-ray and hear it. It's better to have a human being in the room with everybody. So I I think that the this is the whole thing is get the films out there. It's easy to complain. Well, nobody does this. Uh, but the best way to get something, you know, one, one really good way to get exposure for a film so that it gets attention of various home video companies is to get it booked at shows, whether it's something like Capital Fest or, 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 or Cinecon or just any art house screening um, just to get it out of the vaults. And that's why uh, last Halloween I booked uh, The Bat directed by Roland West uh, at the Cinema Arts Center. Just, I don't know why nobody shows The Bat. It is a good 35-millimeter print. It's a perfect Halloween film. So I thought, well, let me get it out there, and let's see if anybody else takes takes a, picks up on it for next year at Halloween time. Meanwhile, you gentle listeners, next month, dig into those undercrank titles. There's a lot of fun there. Mar- Marcel Perez is always going to surprise you. Uh, yes, Douglas McLean please, is going to yes. charm you. Um, Edward Everett Horton, you can have fun. Put down Edward, Edward Everett Horton, and then you do his dialogue. Just watch his mouth, yeah. and you oh can my. do it. Oh my dear, 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 dear! You can oh, do it no, along no, with no. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Alice Howell too. I mean, Alice it's, it's, Howell. You know, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. There, it's all. I mean, yeah. You know, we usually do a commercial for one of the releases, but I think this this episode and next our next episode will be brought to you entirely by just everything in the catalog. There's just so much there that that uh, is stuff that you haven't heard of but you should and is worth worth discovering so mark your calendar for june 1st um, the tom mix will uh, is already on pre-order it'll be out in july on the raymond griffith by the time this well we're recording in the middle of may but by the time uh this episode posts the raymond griffith uh dvd will be available for pre-order and that'll be out in the middle of june as well Speaking of Tom Mix, who was one of the most popular stars, and uh, we're also going to talk of one of the most popular films of the silent era then and now, acclaimed as the first best oh, gosh. picture winner, Wings, yeah. with Clara Bow, Richard Arlen, Buddy Rogers, Gary Cooper, what is Roscoe Carn, some of the... Who the uh, and, yeah, and El, and El Brendel. El Brendel. And, and, Luckily, and, you and can't hear other... El Brendel, so he's a lot better. <laughs> He's very good in his picture. He's good in this, and he's good in "You Never Know Women," which is another another silent that isn't isn't all that well known. No, necessarily a big point that I'm making by by sharing this clip, but I just I played the film this week at the Williams Center, which is in Rutherford, New Jersey. They're doing a series they started a couple of months ago called Art House Tuesdays, and once a month there's a silent film. And most months, it's me at their Steinway. And the film we, they ran this, this month, in the month of May of 2023, they showed Wings. Uh, we had an example of my score on theater organ, I think, on our last episode. And so this is a chance to listen to uh, the same thing on, on piano. Uh, this is about three minutes from my live score. 
uh, recorded with my Zoom H2N close mic right on the piano. Uh, this is about 53 minutes into the film, and it's about 30 seconds before the moment where Clara Bow drives her Jeep into this small uh, village where uh, we see the uh, the troops are marching around. There's a brief moment where we see El Brindel doing a little dance, and then... Um, the German plane is suddenly spotted overhead. So that just gives you a little context for, for what, what you're listening to and why, why we go into this little jig for no apparent reason. Uh, and, and the clip ends with uh, the moment where uh, Charles, Buddy Rogers, and Richard Arlen get into their planes, start their engines, and they do that routine with each other, uh, all set, okay, in which uh, I have a theme uh, the all set okay theme and you'll hear that at the tail end of the musical recording here uh, live in performance at the Williams Center in Rutherford, New Jersey here's three minutes of my live score for Wings truly at a Steinway piano at the Williams Center in Rutherford, New Jersey, which is actually housed in an old, old movie house in that area, not too far from Fort Lee. It's just across the bridge, sort of, uh, playing for wings. That's episode 58. Kids, uh, this has been the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for perform and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, and presenter. Uh, we're happy to have you here uh, every month. I'm joined, as always, by co-producer and co-host Kerr Lockhart. Thanks for everything, Kerr. My pleasure, Ben. And gentle listeners, two requests. Go to wherever you download this podcast from and rate and review the podcast. And then go to silentfilmmusic.com and sign up for the newsletter so you won't miss any of the developments. We thank you for listening, and we will be with you again next time on the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. Until then, I'll see you at the silence. <laughs>